Hey, Stephen, come here a minute. I need you to do something for me. I need you to take this cup to your brother Aaron, okay? Be careful. Bob's right there. Has he got it? Okay. Thanks, Stephen. You can sit down. Now, you youngsters specifically, I want to address you for just a second here. Who could have taken that cup to Aaron? Any thoughts? Okay. Basically, anybody could have. might have been harder for some people. It might have been easier for some people. And who could he have taken the cup to? Anybody? Right? I could have had him take it to the neighbor over there. Okay? But young folks, I want you all to think about this as we go into this message today. And I want you to think about... Who can do what, who should do what, and what should you do when you've got something to do? Okay? I gave that cup to Stephen, and I told him to take it to Aaron. So after I gave it to Stephen, who could take the cup to Aaron? Stephen could. Now, he could have handed it off, but I told him to take it to Aaron. I didn't say hand it off to somebody else. I said, Stephen, take this cup to Aaron. And Stephen took the cup from my hand and walked back and gave it to Aaron. It was his task that he could complete. Now, he could have come here and sat down and said, Jenny, won't you take it to him? Right? But he didn't. He did exactly what I asked him to do. He completed the task that I gave him to do. Keep that in mind. Anybody ever been, God bless your souls, in retail management? Okay, a couple of us. I have as well. Anybody been key holders in retail management? God bless your souls. Me too. Anybody ever had to open the store and you were the only key holder that there was that was supposed to be there to open the store? Yeah, God bless your souls, me too. What happens if you get sick? What happens if your tire goes flat or your battery won't start your car? And your assistant manager's out of town? Who's going to open the store? Ain't nobody going to open the store. And let me tell you what, the bosses don't like that at all. Have you ever been in a position where you were the only person that could do what needed to be done? What I want to present to you today is that we're all in that position. Every single one of us is in that position in our lives. I don't know how familiar... All you are, all of you are with the Lord of the Rings movies, but Frodo is the one who bears the ring, the ring bearer, and he's got to destroy it. And in the movies, he has an interchange with the Elven Queen Galadriel, and this is what she says to him: She says, "You are a ring bearer, Frodo. To bear a ring of power is to be alone." The task was appointed to you. And if you do not find a way, no one will. Is that not where we left Esther last week? We're going to do things a little different today than we normally do them. Okay, I'm going to give us a recap of where we've been over the last four chapters of Esther. Then we're going to reread the end of chapter 4 to set the stage for chapter 5. And we're going to go through chapter 5 kind of a verse or two at a time because this is real suspenseful. 
I don't know, I would guess most of y'all are familiar with the book of Esther, but if you're not familiar with the book of Esther, if you've not read chapter 5 and on, this is a really good story. And it's a historical account. It's not a story that somebody made up. It actually happened. But whoever wrote this book did a really good job of building intrigue and suspense. So we're going to kind of treat it as a suspense story today in chapter 5. And we're just going to read it a little bit at a time. I'm going to reveal everything first and then go back over it. So let me, I'll ask you to stand in just a few minutes um, when we get to the end of chapter 4. But I, I want to recap where we've been over the last four chapters and then focus on what we looked at last week, especially for those of you who haven't been here. We followed the exploits and escapades of an egomaniacal Persian king named Ahasuerus in the Hebrew or Xerxes in the Greek. So King Xerxes. Well, he got mad at his queen, a lady named Vashti, when she didn't come at his beck and call. He deposed her and then set out on a find my favorite virgin that I can make my queen contest. Sounds fantastic, right? Now there were Jews living in Persia's capital of Susa during this time, two of which were a man named Mordecai and his adopted daughter slash cousin. Her name was Hadassah in the Hebrew, but she was known to her Persian friends as what? As Esther. And what we learn about her first is that she's really pretty. And so she actually gets taken into this contest for the king when he's looking for a beautiful young virgin to be his new queen. And she wins the contest for who the king likes best after one night with the king. So her cousin Mordecai, who was a man of some influence in the good old town of Susa, tells Esther through the process to make sure that she doesn't tell anyone that she's a Jew, for whatever reason, which she's faithful to do. She doesn't tell anyone because she does pretty much what he tells her to do. So, you've got two Jews in Susa who are doing pretty well for themselves. Mordecai is a man of power. He sits in the gate of the city, in the king's gate, and he helps make decisions. And he even uncovers a plot of two eunuchs who are trying to kill the king He reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to the king in his name, in Mordecai's name. They write it down in the royal chronicles that Mordecai uncovered his plot. They have the two eunuchs killed. They're hung on a gallows, which at that point were were stakes that people were impaled on. And so we've got this high-ranking, important guy making decisions and uncovering plots to kill the king, Mordecai. And we've got the new queen, Esther. A couple Jews doing well in Persia. But right after this happens with the uh, uncovering of the plot and Mordecai getting reported as having uncovered it, a guy named Haman, Haman the, remember, y'all remember Haman the Agagite, right? Gag me with a spoon. We meet a guy named Haman the Agagite who was climbing the social ladder himself. And then it says that he, Haman, gets promoted to a throne of his own and has respect proscribed to him by the king And the king tells everybody to bow to Haman out of respect. Well, our good friend Mordecai is not a big fan of Haman and his promotion for whatever reason. And he will not bow to Haman. Haman doesn't take that so well. And so he says, I'm going to kill all of Mordecai's people. He says he doesn't want to just single out Mordecai because that would kind of lower his standards. He'd come down to Mordecai's level. So he hatches a plot to not only kill Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, which is the Jewish people. So Haman sells his plan to the king by saying that the Jews are a threat to the kingdom and should be exterminated. And then he starts playing dice. Remember, he's casting lots to figure out what's going to be the most lucky time to kill all the Jews. So this happens in the first month of the year. And it says they cast lots and they finally come to the 12th month of the year. And he says, this is the day. The dice tell me that this is the day that the Jews need to be killed. So he comes to the king. He says, this is the day. Let's set this up. The king issues a royal edict. Okay, Haman, whatever. Here's my ring. Here's my seal. Do what you need to do. And they issue an edict throughout the provinces of Persia, which is from Africa to India, that in the 12th month of the year, coming up, in 11 months, all the Jews in the kingdom will be exterminated. 
Hmm. Well, that's a problem. So they're basically playing the game of let's kill all the Jews in Persia in 11 months. Well, Mordecai finds out quickly in Susa what's going on because that's where the edict is issued first. He tears his clothes, dresses in sackcloth and ashes, and then he has an interaction with Esther telling her to go to the king and intercede for the Jewish people that he told her to not tell them she was a part of. Kind of weird. Esther says she can't exactly just stroll into the king's presence if she's not invited because people get killed that way. If the king doesn't invite you into his presence and you go into the king's presence, they cut your head off, basically. Unless the king extends the golden scepter to you as a sign of acceptance and says it's okay for you to be here. Esther says, well, I can't exactly just do that because it's been 30 days since the king's called me to himself. 30 days. And I can't just stroll into his presence. Then things get real. And Mordecai says this. If you would stand, we're going to read Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And this is where we left them last week. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther after she said, I can't just stroll into the king's presence. It's not safe. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. God, I pray that today your spirit would speak clearly through your word. We thank you for your word. Thank you for telling us who you are. Thank you for showing us how we should act in response to who you are. And I pray that your spirit would teach and instruct, convict us of our sins. I pray that we would be obedient to the commandment. And God, if there be anybody here that doesn't know you as their king, as their Lord, as their Savior, I pray that your spirit would convict them of their sins and that they would obey the first and foremost commandment that you've given us to repent, believe, and be saved. Help us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So I think it's neat. Something's happening here with Esther. Uh, we haven't really painted her in the best light to this point because she hasn't given us reason to. She's just pretty, and she pleases the king in her one night with him. I mean, again, these aren't really pretty pictures here. This, this is a a hot young lady who pleased the king one night and won the contest to be queen. And she's not even telling people that she's Jewish because her uncle told her not to. But something's happening here. Something's happening with this lady. It's, it's almost, though we never see his name, it's almost as if God is doing something in Esther. And here's what I want you to catch today. So that he can do something through Esther. I'm really, really glad that God uses fractured people. I'm really, really glad that God uses people who mess up and who aren't perfect. It's very encouraging to me. So she tells Mordecai now. She gives an order. Here's the queen now. She's not just his cousin slash adopted daughter anymore. She's the queen. And she says, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to lay my life on the line, you go gather all the Jews in Persia. In, not in Persia, in Susa. <laughs> that would take a while. Gather everybody in the city who's a Jew, and I don't want you to eat or drink for three days. And I'll, I'll do the same thing with the girls that are with me, and then I'll go to the king. Though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So we left them with Mordecai going to do what Esther told him to do. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we see a change here. We see a shift. And for three days and nights, all the Jews in Susa and Esther and her girls, who aren't Jews probably, they don't eat or drink for three days. 
hoping to drum up some divine support, hoping Esther doesn't get her head chopped off as she approaches the king uninvited, which is against the law. Now the question is, will she perish? Let's see. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now first things first, on what day? The third day. Does that sound familiar? I mean, does that ring any Christian bells in your head? Huh? Think that might be significant, maybe? Anything else happen in the Bible on the third day? Jesus rose from the dead. 500 years after this-ish, God in the flesh will come out of the grave and be resurrected on the third day. So we have a foreshadowing of the importance of the third day here in Esther. The Old Testament is filled with such things. Jesus said rightly in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is a witness to Christ. Now, they didn't know that, but it certainly was. Esther's arrival here is a type of resurrection. It's a new birth, and it signifies a change, a metamorphosis of this young lady we have known before, but we're now seeing a completely different side of. It's like she's being resurrected. She went through this three days of fasting and mourning and seeking counsel and seeking divine guidance and three days later she comes out of the tomb. And let me tell you what, she's different. We're going to see that very, very plainly here. She's different. So we need to look at the contrast here with Esther and what the setting is here versus what we've seen for and from her before. Just give you a few things to show you. The last time we saw Esther in the presence of the king, she was being led by others. She was being dressed by others. She was being perfumed by others, advised by others, and seemingly not doing anything of her own accord. Even the favor she had won in the sight of others seemed to be a gift. It was like a divine gift. It's like she had favor in the sight of other people. So everything was being done to her and for her. Now, here, instead of being pampered and prepared for a full year, she's been fasting for three days and nights. Completely opposite, right? She put on her royal robes, which is her saying, I'm the queen and this is a business trip. I'm going to the king for business, not pleasure. And nobody's leading her. She goes alone. She made this decision. She's making her plans and her way here. Mordecai didn't say, okay, do this, 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 and this. She said, you go fast, I'll go to the king. So this is important. Something big happened here. Something big happened in these three days that changed this woman. And we saw last week that part of it was she laid down her life. She was willing to die. And in a type and in a sort and a shadow, she did die. The old Esther is gone, y'all. And again, you think that's important for us? You bet it is. Again, remember, the last we saw of her in chapter 4, she was commanding Mordecai what to do. And now, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood. She made up her mind, made up her appearance and made her way to the king's palace, not at his beckoning, but at her desire, at her plan for her business. And she stood. I love that. She stood. She's not pacing. She's not shifting from foot to foot. Here's the queen in her royal attire, and she stands in his sight line. Now, the question is, was she scared? Don't know. Probably. She probably was. Was she emboldened by the three-day fast? Or was she just slap wore out from it? Go three days without eating and drinking. See how strong you feel. We kind of take these human elements out of this, but this woman hadn't eaten or drank for three days. Was she scared? Probably. Was she wore out? Probably. We don't know, but probably. But here she is, Queen Esther, doing what must needs be done. She's not here for the king's pleasure. He didn't call her. She's all business. Now, suspense time. 
Will he extend the golden scepter and thus spare her life? Or will he rashly, which is in his normal temperament, order this insubordinate woman's head to be lopped off her shoulders? What kind of mood was Xerxes in today? Let's see. Verses 2 and 3. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Listen, that's, that's very dramatic. Very dramatic. And, and well, she was pretty lucky, right? No, no. I say that completely in a facetious tone. There's no luck here. Let's get rid of that word, okay? As Christians, we don't believe that, oh man, I got lucky today. Boss was in a good mood and he gave me a raise. Or I got lucky today, I hit all the green lights on the way to work. I mean, and then we, but now listen, I say that kind of joking, but then we start to introduce synchronistic type things into our lives and we start using words like karma. I've heard it from believers. No, don't, don't do that. Now to the king on his throne who was and is to come. And to the Lamb who was slain be glory. There is not one maverick molecule. He's commanding them all. And you didn't get lucky. Esther didn't get lucky here and catch the king in a good mood, okay? This is not about luck. This is about the theme of the book, which is what? Providence. God is working here and using even the mood of the king to bring about his purposes. Now we'll see next week that God works even in the case of insomnia. But here we see the king seeing Esther, standing there in the court, his queen who he hasn't had any desire to see for the past month, and what happened? She won favor in his sight. The older versions say she received grace in his sight. And I would say so, right? The Net Bible, New English Translation, which by the way, if you haven't checked out, please do. Good stuff. You're like, well, it's the Bible. Well, I know, but the, the, the translation is really, really good. The Net Bible says she met with his approval. And since he approves of her, he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand to her, meaning, hey, come on in. So this stately, regal, fasting queen ceremonially, ceremonially approaches and touches the tip of the scepter, which is a sign of reverence, sticking to decorum, and of submission. But she had a plan. He was driving the bus as to whether or not she would approach the throne, but from here on out, it's Esther that's calling the shots. And he says to her, What is it, Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Stop a second. Now, we've heard this statement all of our lives, and we don't think much of it. But this woman came in not knowing if she'd walk out with her head or not. And he says to her, What is it, Esther? I'll give you whatever you ask me, even up to half of my kingdom. From Africa to India. I will share my power with you equally. That does not happen. And we've heard this so much, we're y'all up to half of my kingdom. It's used two times in the Bible. Here, and when Herod says to Herodias' daughter who danced for him and pleased him, funny, it's a king with a woman, right? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. This was not normal. We hear it and it's commonplace, but it's not. It's not commonplace. He says, I will make you equal with me if that's what you want which is a huge statement for this egomaniac to say. Half means equality. For whatever reason, he offers her equality with him. Favor indeed. She hasn't seen him for 33 days. 
She's heard of a plot to kill her people. She's been without food or drink for three of those 33 days. She's dressed in her queenly garb. She has a plan. She puts her life on the line. And now she has offered anything she wants up to equality with the king, half his kingdom. Whatever she had felt in the three days leading up to all of this, she had to be breathing a little easier, trusting that it was time to take the next step. Now the question is, what does she do? Now listen, she could have stepped in and said, I'll take half the kingdom. And then she could make her own decisions. What does she do? Let's look, verses 4 and 5. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, time out. Say what? What do you want, Esther? Up to half the kingdom, it's yours. Um, uh, I'd like for you and Haman to come eat with me. I made some food for you all. What? No, no. Are you crazy? Is this lack of food and water doing something to your brain here? You can have up to half of the kingdom. Carpe diem, sister. Carpe kingdom, sister. Right? But she has a plan. She knows exactly what she's doing and she's driving this bus. And you're going to hear me say that a few more times throughout this message. So what she does is she invites her husband and the man who is plotting her death to a feast that she has prepared. And note that she'd already prepared the meal. Esther had prepared. They came to the feast that Esther had prepared. She is counting on them coming to the point that the food is already on the table. Did y'all see Facing the Giants? What was it the guy said in that movie? Uh, Two farmers pray for rain. One goes out and prepares his field. Which one believes that God's going to answer? We can sit and pray for rain or we can say, okay, I'm going to prepare my life to receive whatever God wants. I'm going to go out and prepare the field and I'm going to pray for rain. Or we can just sit and I hope God does something. That's going to be important as we move forward here. Now Xerxes knew that them coming to the feast wasn't her ultimate request. But he didn't care about that so much right now, so he honors her request. And he says at her request, Bring Haman quickly. Why? Now catch this. So that we may do as Esther has asked. Now again, who's driving this bus? Esther's driving. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So two steps down. Throne room conquered, feast attended. Now what's next? What she got up her sleeve, her royal sleeve. Let's see, verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Now let me just say... She's pretty good at what she's doing. This is classic negotiation. This lady knew what she was doing. What's the way to a man's heart? Pizza, (laughs) y'all! The way to a man's heart is through his taste buds and his stomach. It sure don't hurt. Let me just say that. All right? After the three of them had partaken of the food, they were just chilling, chilling, kicking back on some legal adult beverages, right? And Xerxes is like, hey, what do you want? Now, he's feeling good. He's feeling loose. They're reclined at the table or sitting at whatever they do in Persian tables. I'm not sure. Probably reclined. What's your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. So he reiterates, I'll give you whatever you want. Even to the half of my kingdom. Let me just say, I don't think this type of offer was made every day to just anybody. Because most people would accept it. Right? So I don't think this was just a wild fancy that was commonplace in ancient kingdoms. It's an anomaly. It's weird. And he re-ups it here. It's almost like something is bending things to Esther's favor or something. So with seemingly supernatural influence on her side, what does Esther do? Let's see. 
verses 7 and 8. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So now Esther has him almost literally eating out of her hands, right? He's taken the bait and the hook is unmistakably set. She can do whatever she wants to do right now. And she says, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, now that's a lot of preliminary words, my wish and request is, well, if I found favor in the sight of the king, which she must have known that she had. And if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, which he had already said it did please him, then what? Save my people. Let justice roll down like a mighty river. Right? No. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. I'll tell you what I want, king, tomorrow. If you and your boy there will come and eat with me again tomorrow, I will do as the king has said, which means I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want, tomorrow. Persian Spice was her name. That's gold right there, y'all. She is purposefully building excitement. She's purposefully building anticipation. And she's making them feel special and desired. She's laying it on thick and heavy. And she is driving the bus to get to where she wants to go. Wants to go. And is it working? Well, let's see. Well, now we're going to read a bigger chunk, 9 through 13. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Well, that's not cool, right? We don't want him being happy. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Oh, that's better. (laughs) Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Well, we don't know if all this is working on the king, but old Haman seems to be soaking it up to the point of his head being swollen up like a tick. He went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Whether it was the wine or not, Haman is on top of the world. But as he's leaving the feast, patting his belly, going through the king's gate, who does he see? Mordecai. And Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, and it infuriated Haman. He was filled with wrath, it says, and that wrath was against Mordecai. Nevertheless, verse 10 says, Haman didn't blow his top at Mordecai. He had plenty to be happy about. So he went home, he gathered his friends and his wife, and he got busy talking about what made him happiest, himself. That's enough about you, let's talk about me, is what he said. Verse 11 says, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. And I'm sure his wife's like, that's more sons than I was aware of. But anyway, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials of the servants of the king. He's saying, check me out, y'all. I'm a big deal. I'm the king's number one guy. I'm rich. I got a bunch of sons and there isn't anyone in the kingdom above me in the king's sight. And as if that wasn't good enough, guess who I had dinner with today and was invited back again for tomorrow? The king and the queen. Just the three of us. Which they probably already knew that because he had probably taken a selfie with them, right? And put it on his story or something. They probably like used weird filters on Snapchat. You know, Queen Esther had a hot dog on her arm or something weird like that. Sorry. That's something we would do. (laughs) I weep for the future. I just can't help it. So anyway, he tells them, hey, I was at dinner with the king and queen, and I'm going to have dinner with them tomorrow, just the three of us. He is stoked about these special dinners with the king and queen. 
he notes that Esther didn't let anyone else come but him and the king. It was a really big deal to him. Again, Esther knows what she's doing. But Mordecai is also a big deal to him. Verse 13 shows Haman's one area of dissatisfaction that overrides even his private dinners with the monarchy. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. What a statement. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Breathe that in, y'all. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. This is not just unforgiveness. This is not just spite. This is hatred. And all the blessings, all the good stuff in your life, if you're bitter and unforgiving and vengeful and spiteful, it robs all the joy out of your life. Now that could have been an application point, but it's not. But I want you to catch that. He's recounting everything. Man, he's high on himself. He's happy. But all of this is nothing to me. As long as I see that stinking, nasty Jew sitting in the gate, I hate his guts, and it drains all the joy from my life. What a way to live. Ew. Of course, I kind of feel that way about Florida State and the Dallas Cowboys, but anyway. I don't really. It's close, but we won't go there. He says, I'm a really big deal. I've achieved more than I could ever have hoped for, but it's all worth nothing to me when I simply see Mordecai sitting around being Mordecai in the king's gate. He hates this man. So what should he do? Well, his wife, who seems to be a really nice lady, with some really loving advice for her sweet husband, says this in verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Well, as if he wasn't just bad enough, this lovely bucket of hugs, Mrs. Haman says, what you need to do is make a gallows, a stake, an impaling stake, 75 feet high. And hang Mordecai on it. That's what you need to do, hubby, honey. And then tell the king tomorrow to hang Mordecai on it. Now, who's telling the king what to do right now? He's on Esther's bus. But Haman don't know that yet, right? Then you can go eat with the royal family joyfully. Now, keep in mind... This gallows is a beam to impale someone on. Can you imagine somebody being impaled upon a 75-foot high beam? How do you get them up there? I guess you run them through and then erect. I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. That's what you really need to be happy if you're Haman. (laughs) And Haman says, you know what? You're right. That's exactly what I need in my life. And he had the gallows made. Now imagine getting that order from the king's right-hand man. You're into building gallows or whatever. And the phone rings. Gary's gallows, how can I help you? (laughs) Yeah, this is Haman. Yes, that Haman. And I need a 75-foot impaling beam ready for in the morning. Sure thing, sir. We'll get right on it. Persia was pretty nutty. Okay, there was weird stuff going on. It's unbelievable. So then what happens? We'll find out next week. No, good. Exactly, yes. Yes, if the Lord tarries, we'll find out next week. But for now, it's application time. Oh, (laughs) we got to apply this. It's kind of a tough passage to apply by and large. Not much call for building 75-foot impaling beams in 21st century America, I don't think. So that's not an application point. But three things jump out to me, and they have to do with completing the task before you. Completing the task that only you can complete. And I said all of us have those tasks or that task, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But what is a Christian to do in response to what we're seeing here, especially as we see what Esther has done here? Okay? Three application points, and they are on your mark, Get set and go. That's our application. So you can remember that, right? Huh? 
You can remember that. On your mark, get set, go. If we are going to accomplish the task that only we can accomplish that God has for us in our lives, on your mark, get set, go. And on your mark is about preparation, planning. So the first application point is you've got to plan. Whatever that task is. And you've got to identify that. Let me tell you what I'm not going to do here. Steve will tell you tonight, I guess. Uh, young, young folks, young, young adults, he's going to tell you what your task is. But if you're going to accomplish that thing that only you can accomplish, that only God can accomplish, God can only accomplish through you, which is a big statement, you've got to prepare. You've got to plan. I don't see Esther as ad-libbing or making it up as she goes along. Well, let's see. I'll get to the king's gate, and then we'll see what happens after that. She'd already prepared the meal. Okay, so she knew she was going to invite him to a meal. She'd made definite plans. If he allows me into his presence, then I'll invite him to a feast. If he comes to that feast, I'll invite him to a second feast, and then I'll lay it on the line. It's a very definite course of action here. And it can sound so spiritual to just say, well, we just need to let go and let God. We just need to see where the Spirit leads us. And there is definitely a place for the Spirit's influence and leading in our lives. But if we live our lives with no plan, if we see the task set before us and say, well, let's just see what God does, we are not being faithful with the task that God has given us. We have to have a plan. Now, will things go the way we planned? Very rarely. We make plans, but it's the Lord who orders the steps, is what Scripture says. But if we don't have a plan, we're showing we don't really care what happens. No, I'm showing God that I trust Him. No, you're not. You're not showing God that you trust Him by doing nothing. You have to have a plan. You show God that you trust Him by saying, Okay, God, this is what needs to be done. This is what I believe has to happen in order for me to accomplish this task, in order for you to do through me what only you can do, and in order for you to do through me what only I can do. There are times when godly people have to pray. That's part of your planning. You have to seek counsel from God's Word. That's part of your planning. And you have to seek counsel from God's people, which is part of your planning. Praying, seeking counsel from the Word, seeking counsel from the Word of God, uh, from the people of God as well. That's how you formulate a plan of action. We can't be wishy-washy and live life in a well, we'll just see what happens mentality. Nor can we be fatalists and retreat into a thought or life pattern that says that God's just going to do what God's going to do. I believe in sovereignty, yes. I believe in providence, yes. He's sovereignly and providentially orchestrating all things. But He has given us as human beings, particularly as Christians, as born-again saved people, He has given us responsibility. He has given us choice and free will. And we have to plan and prepare when tasks come our way. It's lazy to not plan. And I'm speaking to myself here. We have to set things in order and plan according to God's revealed will in His Word, plotting our course based on what we know about God and what He wants. Now let me stop there a second. Let me, let me, let me read that again and then I want to say something about that. We have to set things in order and plan according to God's revealed will in His Word, plotting our course based, in, based on what we know about God and what He wants. I want to take a, just a short little diversion here. and it's, I'm, it's not in here. God has told us who He is. God has shown us who He is. God has shown us how He would respond in situations through Jesus. And the whole Bible is there to tell us who God is. I'm not Esther. I'm not Mordecai. I'm not David slaying the giant. These things are recorded in Scripture so I'll know what God is like. The Bible is a story about God. And He has revealed Himself, so I seek guidance, counsel, and insight into the heart, mind, and will of God through the Bible. I don't go saying, God, what should I do today? Okay, this is about me. It's not about you. 
The Bible is not about you. It's about God and who He is and how He responds and how He would have us to respond based on who He is. Just what Jason said Wednesday. We worship according to the truth that is revealed in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit that He provides. So we respond and we, and we plan based on who God has revealed Himself to be. Not on, oh, what should I do now? God, give me a magic verse. The Bible's not about you. It's about God. And so we plan according to what He has revealed in His Word. Esther knew that her best plan of action was not to bust into the king's throne and hysterically, Oh, please spare my people! He's like, what are you talking about? Get her out of here. She understood the times that she lived in, and oh, for a group of people who understand the times that they live in. She understood the times that she lived in and the type of men she was dealing with, and she made a plan to have maximum impact in those times with those people in that world. Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And again, oh, for a generation of Christians who are wise as serpents, who plan according to that wisdom, who plot and scheme and dream according to God's will, especially since we are sheep in the midst of wolves. And we are. Which leads us to our next point. Get ready. On your mark. Get set, right? Get set is about courage. Courage is defined as the ability to do something that frightens you. John Wayne is credited as saying, Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. Now there's a clarion call in the Bible to, quote, Fear not. But there's also a call to be courageous. And that is encouraging to me. Very encouraging. Don't be afraid, but when you are afraid, be courageous and do what needs done in the face of your fear. It's almost like God meant it when He said, He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. Don't be afraid, y'all. When you're afraid, be courageous. God knows commands to not be afraid are not enough. Don't be sad. Don't be scared. Don't be anxious. The commands themselves are not enough. And God knows that. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. We need more. We need courage as Christians to fulfill the task that God has given us to do ourselves. We need courage. Commentator Anthony Tomasino states it like this. This is a great quote. It is fairly certain that little of importance is accomplished in the Bible or the world without courage. On about 65 occasions in the Bible, God or His spokesman command people, fear not. And on about 30 more, God commands them to be courageous. He goes on to say, Rarely, however, are these words designed merely to give comfort. More often, they are meant to empower. Biblical courage is not the courage to be, but the courage to do. It gives people the ability to take action in a wide variety of forms. In Joshua 1, Joshua is told four times to be courageous and to go forth and conquer the promised land. In 1 Chronicles 22.13, David counsels Solomon to be courageous and build the temple. The disciples pray for courage so that they can evangelize in Acts chapter 4. Courage will not enable all of us to be fighters. Some of us it will make into builders. Some will become petitioners. But whatever its purpose, courage is as vital to the kingdom of God as is prophecy or patience. Mm, That's really good, (laughs) y'all. And is this not what we see in Esther here? Is she not being very courageous? She is. She comes out of this three-day tomb very courageous. Scared to death, but still doing what it has been given to her to do. In the face of death, 
which was sure to elicit fear, she put on her royal robes and faced her fears head on. With no guarantee of acceptance, with no promise that she'd live through it all, she courageously did something in the midst of her fear. And so should we. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's pretty cool right there. I am sick and tired of being a mamby-pamby, oh yeah, but what if, yeah, but what if kind of Christian. What if I preach the gospel and somebody makes fun of me? What if I preach the gospel and somebody doesn't believe? What if I stand up for truth and it costs me my job? What if I stand up for truth and it costs me my life? The Bible calls us to a courageous Christianity to be as bold. It doesn't call us to be bold. It says the righteous are bold as a lion. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Courage is in the blood of the Christian. And we see it modeled in Jesus, right? who marched up the hill carrying his own cross for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and did what only courageous people do. We are a weird mix of a sheep and a lion, right? So is Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who was slain. And so are we in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And while there is surely fear, there is courage to face that fear so that we can do what needs done, which leads us to our last point. On your mark, get set, go. Action. Esther didn't just talk a good game. She didn't make a good plan and summon her courage to simply hope the fast would be enough to move heaven and earth on behalf of her kinsmen. No, she knew she was the only one who could do what needed to be done here. So she acted. She clothed herself. She went to the throne room. She stood there in the sight line of the king. She acknowledged his accepting her. She invited him and Haman to the feast that she had prepared. She worked her plan to get them there again the next day. And then she, we'll see, prepares another feast. She did these things. She didn't pass them off to somebody else because she knew it could only be her. So she did what only she could do. In all our talk of providence and an invisible, silent God orchestrating things according to His grand design, here we see a human being acting purposefully, courageously acting. Listen to me, Christian. You fill some unique roles in your life but you can only fulfill those roles if you do something. If you preach the gospel to that family member, if you reach out and help meet those needs that you know about. And the key words here are you and do. In so many matters of life, it's up to you to do what you know needs done. We use phrases like, well, I'll pray for you. Or I'll write a check later. Or, this is my favorite that I use too much, let me know if there's something I can do to help you. These are all phrases of promised actions that have to be acted upon. Yes, providence is directing all things, but our actions, us doing or not doing, also play an irreplaceable role in God's activity in the world. Did you hear what I just said? Us doing or not doing form an irreplaceable part of God's plan. God uses people. Christianity is a doing religion.
as a Christian, if you're not doing, if you are not doing, your theology is shallow and pretty much pointless. Believing facts about God and doing nothing with them is pointless and it does not help you. Now that's a pretty big statement. But it's borne out in what we see in the Bible. God comes and tells Adam in the beginning to tend the garden. He tells Moses to lead his people out. We saw that he tells Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. And on and on and on and on and on. And the Bible is a book about God telling people to do something. Yes, there are things to believe, but those beliefs move us to action. And if they don't move us to action, we don't really believe them. The word believe means to live by. I believe God is sovereign, so I live as if God is sovereign. I believe that Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So I go and I make disciples of all nations. I do that. If I just believe that Jesus said that on a mountain in Palestine 2,000 years ago, it does no one any good. It's pointless. It makes Jesus a good teacher whose teachings mean nothing in our world today. So all through the Bible, all the way up even to John's revelation, the end of the book, he tells John to write, to seal up, not to seal up, to proclaim. He tells John things to do with what he is receiving. And Esther knew she had something to do. And if she didn't do it, no one else would. No one else could. And I want to ask you today as we close, what are those things in your life? And it's not just one thing. What are those things in your life that you need to be doing? No one else can read the Bible for you. Nobody else can pray for you. You're like, no, people can pray for me. I'm saying nobody has your prayer life. Only you can do that. You're like, well, that's not really a big deal. It's a huge deal. You've got to do it. And again, I'm talking to myself. You've got to plan for it. You've got to be courageous when the alarm goes off. And you've got to do it. And that's it's a big deal. And that equips you to go out and do the things in your life that you should be doing that only you can do. God has spoken And He is speaking through His Word. And through His speaking, He has given us tasks to do. Each of us individually and all of us corporately. Things no one else can do. We have to know these things. We have to plan for these things. We have to be courageous in the face of fear as we do these things. And we have to do these things. And Esther gives us a great picture of that. And maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus. The command is to repent, to turn around, to change your mind about your sin. Recognize that you're a sinner and come to God and confess that you need a Savior. That's a command. And if you don't obey that command, you will spend eternity in hell paying the penalty for the sins that you committed. But... If you obey that command, your sins are placed on the finished work of Christ who went to the cross to pay the penalty for those sins. And you say, I believe that God accepted His sacrifice on my behalf. And you're born again. By the work of God, you obey the command that He's given you to do. Only you can do that. Nobody else can get saved for you. Nobody else can save you. Be bold. Be courageous. Repent. Believe. Trust. And do. Let's pray. God, you are faithful even when we are faithless. And God, we have dropped the ball so many times as your people. And you know our frame that we are but dust. And you keep calling out to us. And you keep reminding us that the righteous are as bold as a lion. I know we're afraid of persecution and we're afraid of failing. Yes, all those things are true. And you know that. And in the midst of it, you tell us to make a plan. To be courageous 
and to do what only we can do in our lives. You have, all of us, placed us in our lives for such a time as this. Every single one of us. God, give us the grace and the power. Help us to see. I I retract that, God. I, I repent of what I just asked. I don't ask that you would do this. I ask that you would show us the truth of the power that you have given us, the boldness that is ours as the righteous. And that we would walk in that boldness. And again, God, if there be those here who do not know you, convict them of their sins, show them their need for a Savior, and may they run wholeheartedly to Jesus and say, I believe you are that Savior. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and then went to the cross to take my sins upon himself, who was buried, who was resurrected on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for me. God, would you give the gift of faith to those who don't know you here this morning? And for the rest of us who do, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. And thank you for the unique tasks that you've given us to do in our lives. Help us to get on our marks, to get set and to go by the power that you provide. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're just missed. Stay and eat with us if you can.